Welcome back. If we haven't met before, I am Jillian and I have the privilege of opening God's word with you today in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 7, verse 10. So grab your Bibles and turn there with me. And while you are doing that, I'm going to tell you a little story. When my husband and I were on our sixth anniversary trip, we had the opportunity to go to Maui, Hawaii. And while we were there, we went on a little excursion. We went on a joint kayaking and snorkeling trip to go out to see the beautiful, ginormous old sea turtles that like to hang out off the coast there. And before we went, our guide was giving us a little safety talk and he was telling us how to get back into the kayak after we had snorkeled. And he said, now whatever you do, do not jump in on your backs because you will flip the kayak over. And at that point, I just kind of raised my hand and said, "Um, there's a little problem. And I pointed down to my stomach because at that point, it was pretty obvious that I was heading into my third trimester pregnant with our second son. And the guy just kind of cocked his head and said, hmm, so you can't jump in on your stomach, can you? And I said, nope. And he just waved his hand at me and he said, don't worry, we'll figure you out when we get out there. Needless to say, I did not have a whole lot of confidence in that comment that I was going to get back safely to the coast. But we went out anyway, and I did make it back because I'm here to tell the tale. I certainly felt like one of those ginormous sea turtles I had just gone out to watch, but I'm so glad it wasn't filmed. But however, I went out because I did have confidence that I would make it back because my husband, Tim, was with me. I figured even if I couldn't maneuver myself into that kayak, I had had six years worth of evidence in his character at that point and in his ability to fulfill his vows to me on our wedding day, not to leave me stranded in places like the Pacific Ocean. And I think good marriages are supposed to be a picture of God's love for us, right? We are his church. We are his bride. And that reminded me of the passage that we are looking at in Hebrews today, because we're going to talk about evidences of God's character and vows that he makes to his people and how that inspires in us all kinds of hope for whatever waters we face in this life, whether calm or rough Seas. So that's a little preview of some of the ideas we're going to talk about today. Now I'm going to give you a more detailed overview, section by section, of what we're going to talk about so you can track with me through the scripture today. Section one, we're going to call the evidence, God's character and sworn oath. And that's going to be chapter six, verse 13 through 18. Section two is going to be the illustration, anchor of the soul, chapter six, verses 19 through 20. 
And then we're going to start in chapter seven with section three, the priestly order of Melchizedek. Let's pause a moment and talk to the Holy Spirit about our time together in scripture today. Helper, Holy Spirit, we ask you to meet us here in your word today. We pray that you would speak mightily to our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Open our eyes to the wondrous things in your word. Amen. Okay, let's start into that section one, the evidence, God's character and sworn oath. Let's pick up in chapter six, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. All throughout Hebrews, we have witnessed the author's pattern of presenting evidence to us that Jesus is true and better. And that evidence inspires all kinds of hope and confidence and ultimately endurance for any trial that we may face here in this life. And the author often pairs a word picture or illustration with those evidences to just cement in our hearts what they are trying to say. So here we have two pieces of evidence presented for us, and then they pair it with an illustration, anchor for our souls. So let's talk about the evidences first. The first evidence is that God's character was proved through his fulfilled promise to Abraham. So first we need to establish who is Abraham and what was this promise? Because this was something that the original audience would have been very familiar with. Abraham's story starts in Genesis 11 and it goes through several, several chapters of Genesis. His original call by God we find in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls him out of his land to go to a new land that God would show him, where his descendants would become a great nation and his name would be great and he and his descendants would be a blessing. Interestingly enough, though, this call is repeated several times. And this verse from Hebrews 6, 14, I will bless you and multiply you is cross-referenced to Genesis chapter 22, a time much later in Abraham's life where his faith was being put to the test. 
I believe the authors of Hebrews references Genesis chapter 22 because this is also a place where God swears by himself, which is really important for the argument the author of Hebrews is making here. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to give you a little background on this passage. Remember, Abraham was promised that his offspring would number the stars in the sky. Even though God had promised this, Abraham had to wait quite a long time from a human standpoint. He was 100 years old when he received his son, Isaac. He and his wife, Sarah, did not wait perfectly. They took matters into their own hands when it seemed impossible to them that this was going to become true. Sarah gave Abraham her servant Hagar to have a baby with. That's another story, maybe for another time, but keep it in mind because we're going to circle back to it. God did give Abraham the promised son, Isaac, with Sarah when he was 100. In Genesis chapter 22, God tests Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice Isaac, the son he had waited so long for. Abraham does everything to obey God. And at the last moment, God sends an angel to stop him and provides another sacrifice instead, a ram. And Abraham then calls that place the Lord will provide. Let's look here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 15, and we're going to read through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So knowing what we know about this story, what is the author of Hebrews saying about Abraham's character? Well, Abraham was patient and obtained the promise. Abraham also trusted God when he asked Abraham to sacrifice the son he had waited so long for. He had so much trust in God that he believed that even if Isaac died that day, that God would raise him from the dead. If you were to flip forward in Hebrews chapter 11, you would read this in verse 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author commends Abraham for his patience, faith, and trust, and calls us to follow his example of patience, faith, and trust. And that is certainly a good and true application for us today. But I believe the story of Abraham is being used in Hebrews 
not primarily to showcase Abraham's character, but to put God's character on full display. Did Abraham obtain the promise because he patiently waited? Or did Abraham obtain the promise because God swore it and what he says will always happen? I think it is the latter. You see, our character sways all the time, even Abraham's. And for sure, Abraham's descendants' character swayed all the time. But God kept his promise to Abraham and his children, not based on their behavior, but based on God's unchangeable, faithful character. So what is being said about God's character in this example? Well, his character does not change and he sticks to his word. His word does not change. Let me ask you something. How do you know about someone's character? You watch them over time and you watch them in every circumstance, building trust as you are able to watch the revealed character of the person through different kinds of circumstances. This is why my dad very wisely, very sagely told me never to marry a guy until I watched what his revealed character was when he got a flat tire. I love that advice. And if you think about our relationship with God, we are able to watch him in every circumstance be faithful. He is completely trustworthy and his character never changes in all circumstances. He remains the same. We can witness his faithfulness to us. And by reading his word, we can witness his faithfulness throughout all of time. This is why the Israelites recounted the stories of their faith over and over again and why God worked the practice of remembering into the very fabric of their faith. They needed to remember God's trustworthy character to bolster their faith for both present and future circumstances. And so we also need to remember So evidence one was God's character revealed through his fulfilled promise to Abraham. God gave Abraham Isaac and he multiplied his descendants and he blessed them greatly and he gave them the promised land. Remember, not because of Abraham's character, but because of God's. And evidence two being presented here is God's sworn oath. Let's go back to Hebrews and pick up in verse 16 and 17 of chapter six. For people swear by something greater than themselves and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. We've seen this pattern of legal language before in Hebrews, and here we see it again with this mention of oaths. And we are familiar with this practice even in our modern world. If you've ever been to a courtroom or watched a courtroom drama, you've seen witnesses called to the stand where they have to put their right hand up in the air and say something like this, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. 
Or maybe you have watched a president being sworn into office and they have to put their right hand on the Bible to swear that oath. Why do they say, so help me God? Why do they put their right hand on the Bible? Because ultimately they are swearing by something much higher than themselves, the highest authority. No higher authority can be but God. And the oath in this case provided in Hebrews was sworn also by the greatest authority. God swore an oath by himself. So we know it will come true because remember, his character is trustworthy. He sticks to his word. He is the way, the truth, and the life. His word always comes to pass. He always does what he says he will do. He fulfills all his promises. It is impossible for God to lie because it is directly counter to his character. His word is utterly untainted by falsehood in contrast to the enemy who is the father of lies. And because he has sworn it will happen, we can believe it with absolute confidence and certainty. He made a promise to Abraham and fulfilled it. Abraham's children were the heirs of the promise. And here is the good news, sister. Because of Christ, we are also heirs of the promise. We are actually co-heirs with Christ, it says in Romans 8, 17. And our inheritance is awaiting us in heaven, it says in 1 Peter 1, 4. He has also made promises to us and will fulfill them. We are saved by faith in Christ. We will enter the heavenly places with him. Jesus will return, redeem, and restore all things. Jesus will return, will redeem, and will restore all things. So here is our main truth for this first section. God's trustworthy character and sworn oath give us tremendous evidence for the hope we have in Jesus. God's character and sworn oath give us tremendous evidence for the hope we have in Jesus. Now let's get back into Hebrews and pick up where we left off as we head into our next section, Anchor of the Soul. In verse 19, we read, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't know much about nautical things. I was born and raised in the heart of Ohio and I have been here for my entire life. So I thought I would visit some Anchor One on 101 for us landlocked folks to help us understand this beautiful illustration the author is giving to us today. So picture an anchor with me. What does it look like? There's a cross at the top, how cool is that? And then at the bottom, there are these two, what are called flukes jutting out to catch on to something that's on the sea bottom. They're usually unbelievably 
heavy and made of solid metal. An anchor's purpose is to stabilize a boat, to keep it in place or to keep it steady in rough seas. It also keeps a boat from drifting in a direction it should not be going, and it helps it either stay in place or helps it move in the direction it should be going. I also learned that it isn't uncommon for a ship to have multiple anchors depending on its size and purposes. So knowing these basics about anchors, let's revisit what I believe the author is saying. They're saying we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And that anchor is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like an anchor, our hope in Jesus secures and steadies us stabilizing us in rough seas and not only prevents us from drifting, but helps us keep going in the right direction. And we do not need multiple anchors, do we? We only need one, one hope, if that hope is in Jesus. His work on the cross and his resurrection is enough to anchor us all. You see, no other hopes can do what our hope in Christ can do. No other hopes extend beyond this world and beyond the grave. Indeed, we are only ever truly anchored when we are anchored in Christ. Let's talk for a minute about the original audience. What had been their hope? For these Jewish Christians, their hope had previously been in the old covenant way, following the law and trusting in the high priests to make intercession and sacrifices on their behalf. But this was always a temporary solution, one to precede the true and better hope of Jesus Christ. The ultimate hope was always in the Messiah to come. And the author is proclaiming, listen, he has come and it is Jesus. These verses that say Jesus has gone into the inner curtain is a reference to the old covenant way of life. One where a priest would make atonement once a year on behalf of the people. He would present the sacrifice and go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the place where God's presence dwelled. When the author of Hebrews says Christ went as a forerunner behind the curtain, it is saying he was the high priest, the perfect priest, and he paved a new way for us. Because the veil was torn with his death on the cross, he made way for us to be intimate with God. This is why I believe the hope of Jesus is so stabilizing because he went before us so he could be with us. He went before us so he could be with us. His presence brings peace to our souls. Wouldn't it give you confidence to know in any storm that the God who has the power over the wind and waves is with you? 
It reminds me of the story in the Gospels where Jesus was asleep on a boat with his disciples during a storm. He was so chill, he was fast asleep, and the disciples were really worried about it. But he woke up and he calmed the storm. He calmed the wind and the waves. The helper, the Holy Spirit, is even closer to us than Jesus was on the boat with his disciples. He is inside every one of us Christ followers. And believe you me, he still holds power over every kind of storm. And Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, praying for us. Can you imagine Christ praying for us? That thought is an anchoring thought. So Christ went before us and is praying for us. And we know the helper, the Holy Spirit is with us now. Christ is praying for us. The Holy Spirit is present with us. And we know that any storm we are experiencing now is temporary for our anchor is strong and fastened heavenward. The anchor is attached to the person of Jesus Christ in our new heavenly home where we will dwell with him forever. So nothing here can truly rock us. Because sin and death have no hold or victory over us any longer. And that is the best hope of all, is it not? So our main truth for this section is also the main idea for this entire session. And it is, Jesus is our true and better hope. Jesus is our true and better hope. Let me ask you something. What is the place in your life where you feel the most hopeless? Who or what are you holding on to for your hope? What is your anchor and will it hold you? You see, you can cut ties with any other anchor now besides Jesus. You can live untethered and free from any other anchor weighing you down because you have the most secure, eternal hope of all in Jesus Christ lifting you up. If we turned further in Hebrews to Hebrews 12, one through two, the author writes this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight those anchors that just are not cutting it. And sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hold fast to Christ and Christ alone. Look to him, the founder, the perfecter, the forerunner, our hope, the true and better hope, Jesus Christ. Let's move now to our last section, section three. And we're gonna start Hebrews chapter seven and read through verse 10. 
For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now you might be wondering, wait, who is Melchizedek? No, I didn't just sneeze. You do not have to tell me Gesundheit. Melchizedek is the name of a somewhat mysterious character made very significant by the author of Hebrews and his connections he made between Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek is the very first priest identified in the Bible, and he is called priest of the Most High God. And he's different from any other priest in the Bible because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi, the tribe that God had appointed to be his priests. In fact, Melchizedek was born way before Levi was. Levi was actually Abraham's great grandson. So this passage actually calls Melchizedek's line the superior line of priests because the superior Melchizedek blessed the inferior Abraham, ancestor of Levi. In a minute, we'll turn to Genesis and hear more about this blessing, but we can learn more about Melchizedek from his name. His Hebrew name means king of righteousness, and he was king of the city of Salem, which means peace. Remember, the author of Hebrews has this habit of comparing the lesser thing to the greatest thing, Jesus. And how does Melchizedek resemble, point to, foreshadow Jesus? Well, in verse 3, we read that he resembles the Son of God in this way, that he's without mother or father or genealogy. Nothing is recorded about his beginning or his end, but continues on as a priest forever. Now, the commentary that I read and the ESV study Bible notes say that they don't think that Melchizedek was actually immortal. They wrote, they believe the lack of gene genealogy was to distinguish him clearly from the Levitical priesthood because all the Levites' genealogy are recorded there in scripture. They also wrote that they believe the genealogy is missing to make Melchizedek 
better resemble and foreshadow Jesus, who is eternal. Jesus was there at the beginning and he will exist forever and his priesthood is forever. The author of Hebrews has been introducing us to this idea that Jesus is the true and better and final high priest. Jesus is also both king of righteousness, being the only truly righteous man, and king of peace, making peace by his blood on the cross. And Jesus is also a priest king, being a king in the line of kings, in the line of Judah, and being a priest in the line of Melchizedek. So to recap, Jesus is an eternal priest, king of peace and righteousness, and his priesthood comes from the superior line of priests, the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek occurs a few times in scripture. We see him in Genesis chapter 14, in Psalm 110, which the author of Hebrews has a habit of quoting. And we see him again here in the book of Hebrews. So let's flip to the first place, Genesis chapter 14. We're going to read a little bit of this together because I believe that this story does not get nearly the sermon space that it deserves, especially compared to all the other places in Genesis we tend to talk about over and over again. The first thing that you might notice here in Genesis 14 is that the guy we're talking about, his name is Abram. And before we were talking about Abraham, don't let that trip you up. They're the same guy. God changes his name in Genesis chapter 17. What happens here in chapter 14 is a battle. There was two different alliances of kings whose names are impossible to pronounce. I dare you to try. I won't embarrass myself by trying here. But what you need to know is that one of those alliances won and ran off with Abram's nephew, Lot, who was caught up in all this nasty business. Abraham very gallantly goes after Lot's captors with 318 of his men and he brings Lot back and he also brings back much of the plunder that was taken from the kings that lost. Two of the kings that lost came out to meet him. One was Melchizedek, king of Salem, and the other was the king of Sodom. So let's pick up in Genesis 14, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich." Now, there is a lot to unpack in this passage, but for the sake of time, since the author of Hebrews brings up Melchizedek, I just want to focus on him and the ways he foreshadows Jesus here. 
I want to talk first about Melchizedek's gift. What did he bring? He brought out bread and wine. Does that sound familiar? Jesus also brought out bread and wine at his last supper. And he died on the cross, his broken body, and poured out his blood, what the bread and the wine signify. Melchizedek brings also a blessing. He says, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He acknowledged that Abram is blessed by God, and he acknowledged that everything, heaven and earth, belongs to God, and he blesses God. And he acknowledges that God is the one who has caused the victory for Abram. And this is reminding me a lot of the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus prayed in Matthew 6, 9 through 13 and Luke 11, 1 through 3. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He, like Melchizedek, acknowledges the maker of heaven and earth. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He, like Melchizedek, acknowledges the ability for deliverance comes from God and God alone. He has the victory. And then there's Melchizedek's character, which stands in direct contrast to this other king, the king of Sodom. When the king of Sodom meets Abram, there is no gratitude expressed. His response is short, blunt, and dishonoring. Basically, you can keep the stuff, but give me my people. Melchizedek is so distinctly different given his blessing and his gift. He is grateful to Abraham and honors him. Jesus's character also stands in contrast to our enemy, the devil. Melchizedek's character foreshadows Christ in stark contrast to an evil, ungrateful leader. Jesus joyfully comes under the authority of the Father, whereas Satan is ungrateful and demanding of what is not actually his. He showed his character, Jesus did, he showed his character time and time again in his ministry on earth and his commitment and love for his people and by giving of his own life. Jesus obtained glory and honor forever, assuming his rightful spot at the right hand of the Father, where he serves as our high priest king forever. So our main truth for this last section is this. The line of Melchizedek is the superior priesthood, and Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus' superior role as our priest king. The line of Melchizedek is the superior priesthood and Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus's superior role as our priest king. To end our session today, I want to follow Melchizedek's example and offer a blessing to our eternal priest king. Now he doesn't need our blessing, does he? Clearly we are the inferior and he is the superior. But how else can we respond but in worship and praise and gratefulness for his goodness to us? 
So let's bless his name together, shall we? I want you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 103. And we are going to read this blessing to end our time together. I don't have my post-it note here, so it's going to take me a second. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind pass, passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children and to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Mm -hmm. 